We recap how our old rifle clubs came into existence before getting dumped by the Federal Government in a disgraceful change of policy. We look back at using SLRs and when you got to take them home, guessing where the targets on the range are and the fights to save the Anzac and Malabar ranges. Plus we look at the shortage of primers and powders. If you have immediately at hand a weapon that can kill a lot of people in a short period of time, uh, what then happens is that a, an impulse, a hateful impulse, is turned into a murderous assault. Welcome to the Go News Australia podcast. It's the podcast for Australian shooters. You just want the political interference taken out of shooting. Welcome to another episode of Gun News Australia podcast. I'm Neil Jenkins and this is being brought to you by Politics Reloaded. And I'm with Sean Fraser. How are you doing, Sean? How are you doing, Neil? What we'll be talking about uh, is, I just want to quickly recap last week. Uh, that was the first live uh, broadcast and it was pretty much to te- as a test run for these uh, podcasts going forward. Um, there were a whole lot of technical issues we had to line up. We were a new platform, we were broadcasting uh, live and onto streaming onto Facebook as, and YouTube as we are today. There was one technical hitch though that actually uh, it actually prevented you from coming on, so that's why the first episode was short, but it's good to see you here today. So thank you yeah. for coming on. Yeah, well, new, new webcam fix that <laughs> problem. Okay. All right. So the idea is, and as you were saying uh, before we, uh, we started, Sean, this will be, uh, should be the last podcast this year. And we're looking to commence uh, in in January, whether it's the end of the second or third week, whatever it is. However, there is an issue which um, has popped up, which I'm going to have a look at the next few days, which might actually require me to do another one. And it comes out of Western Australia. So I'll do some work there. With the last week's start, um, we were talking about the resignation of um, Anastasia Palaszczuk, Queensland Premier. And I ran through some of the issues around that. The the tenure of some of the Labor premiers, uh, who were actually all the ones who closed down our gun shops during COVID. But the one question I didn't get to ask you, which I want to ask you now, is what do you think her resignation and her replacement means to shooters in Queensland in what is going to be an election year? Okay, um, Neil, the one of the big things that Palaszczuk refused to do for a whole tenure was she only ever agreed to do interviews for, well, when I say interviews, like press conferences, and she would take minimum questions after press conferences. She never really did. In her whole tenure, the ABC, um, ABC Brisbane asked her, there was a there was a, a weekly invitation for seven years, uh, more than seven, you know, her whole tenure, for her to appear on ABC radio so that the audience or the, even the ABC staff radio presenters could ask her questions. She never once appeared in her whole tenure. So she only ever gave press conferences and asked minimal questions, which 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 deliberate because she limited un, uncomfortable questioning. And she didn't never went on ABC radio. She never wanted to be involved mm. with the public asking her anything. I don't know whether the new premier, obviously Stephen Miles, is going to be any different. He's from the left faction, whereas Palaszczuk was from the right faction of the ALP uh, unions. But bear in mind, bear in mind, Neil, that Stephen Miles has been Palaszczuk's 
almost right-hand man for so long, mm. is he just going to follow her footsteps? We don't know. Yeah. As far as um, shooters go, it doesn't sound like there's any news one way or the other. Well, the trouble is we don't know. Because of Premier Palaszczuk's refusal to be interviewed for the last seven years by anyone, we don't know the Queensland ALP's position on, on virtually anything that they don't give a press conference for. Bear in mind, Stephen Miles has only been there for a one, uh, just over a week. So we don't even know his position or his positioning on uh, the shooting sports or, or guns in general. Mm. We, might, we may find out later. It's the same police minister who has been generally fairly good um, up in Queensland, but we don't know. And we don't know what we don't know, Neil. Sure. Okay. I mean, the election's um, 26th of October, a few months away. Can't see them making too many waves between them. Yes, and the benefit yeah. we have in Queensland is Graham Park and the Shooters Union have a very good reputation up here and has access to police ministers. And because of his reputation of good standing up here, we do get listened to a lot more than, say, our poor Western Australian cousins who have basically been ignored and railroaded into draconian measures. So um, we we do have that benefit up here. There are a lot of shooters up here. So I don't think, as you say, with with the election next year, I don't think the... I don't think the ALP is going to want it. They're already teetering. or They've changed the Premier because they were thinking, oh, we're in a bit of trouble here. We're actually down in the polls a lot. In fact, the the Liberal opposition was in front of the polls for the first time in six years. So that hence the Premier change. So they're not going to want to rock the boat, Neil, and they're not going to want to piss off a large majority of the electorate, i.e. our students. Yeah, Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. So the topic I wanted to cover today we, it was it was follows a post that we put up a few days ago on rifle clubs and the formation of them in Australia because a lot of people might be, shooters may have seen a lot of the small rifle clubs um, that are quite old and they're in fairly obscure places. In Melbourne, some of them are tucked up against railway lines and other places they're, um, you know, there's probably about 20 to 30 of them that have gone around the various metropolitan areas. And I think the history of that was probably worth, just worth uh, mentioning. Now, before I go on to that, I just neglected to mention, we have an audience here um, that can engage in chat and also you can request a live call into the show if you want to comment on, ask a question, have a gripe, uh, whatever it is. Um, so that's available if you're in the audience. Uh, it's not available if you're on Facebook or YouTube because you're just simply watching the the streaming of this podcast. So the way you get to the audience is become a subscriber to Politics Reload. So on rifle clubs, the history of quite a few of these smaller clubs that we have in Australia really comes back to, it was after the Boer War and before World War One. a lot of the, basically a lot of rifle clubs are for, uh, formed to provide a civilian support to a military where people didn't have cars, they basically were able to walk from home with a gun over their shoulder to the local range and, and shoot. So that's why there are quite a few small ones that have been formed. And over the years, they actually, as uh, World War One, World War Two, and passed, they went away from being a civilian support to becoming sporting clubs, but they continued with that old infrastructure. And if you go to quite a few of them, you'll see some old flags up on the the walls, um, clubs which um, the club I went to last week has a, a 
a flag from 1919 up on its still up on its wall. I mean, the thing's about three feet high. It's quite a big one. And I think you would say also, uh, Sean, that you shot also, I think, at full ball, right? Uh, actually, at the 22 uh, Club and yeah, also was... at a full ball range that was formed under those um, rigs. Yeah, well, because um, I was um, at RMIT from 1988 to 1992, I was in the RMIT Rifle Club. I, I didn't even know, for the first six months, I didn't even know such a club existed. It was an obscure club linked to the engineering department, and I saw a um, RMIT Rifle Club handwritten sign back then. We're talking about 1989, after all, yeah. um, stuck to the engineering engineering uh, poster side of it. And I go, oh, that sounds pretty good. So I rocked up the RMIT Rifle Club. Funny enough, when it was first formed, way before I got there, used to shoot at the MCG range, the MCG small ball range. Yep. Now, that because obviously RMIT is a city-based university, well, it was an institute of technology back when I was attending. However, we shot at the Brunswick train station range, small ball range, which, as you say, Neil, was literally next to the Brunswick railway station. We would we would hear the the trains rock past as we're shooting, and you could literally see the tracks from where we were shooting. So um, it was very minimally baffled. I, I think it was just sort of a accepted thing that the neighbours would hear a, a small small ball rifle shot every now and again. RMIT used to do they used to do that once a week at the Brunswick Small Ball Club. However, once a month we used to go to Werribee, which was the full ball club, um, and shoot. 7.62 slash 308 Omark single shot rifles. The furthest I got, unfortunately, I just was only a few months into it because the furthest I got was 600 metres uh, because the government, in its wisdom, decided to close the whole of the Werribee Range and turn it into the um, Werribee Range housing estate, which it now it's been for the last 30 years. Yeah. So, I mean, I was, I was lucky enough to attend the last shoot that they held there. Um, that was a pretty epic event. You're talking about a a thousand meter, a thousand yard range, and probably a couple hundred shooters shooting there for the last shoot. Pretty sad occasion. Uh, and we we went. There was across the road. There was a small pub called the Rifle Range Pub. I'm not sure if you ever went there, Neil. That had all the pennants and the trophies and stuff like that from Werribee. Other locals were there, but we we sank our strength from our sorrows about the closing of that club. And then obviously they shut the range and then scraped about a mm. metre of dirt off um, and built a housing estate on it, funny enough. You mentioned a couple of um, things along the way, which I want to come back to. As before you actually mentioned it, I actually wrote the word Ponsford on, uh, on, on my notepad here. And Ponsford was the stand at the MCG. You know, it's been demolished since you know, they've redeveloped the MCG, but that's where they shot at the MCG uh, in the cricket training area there was um uh, like an indoor uh, practice area yep. and they'd wheel out some cupboards and there was the equipment and i don't seem to recall that the that it was baffled um so unfortunately i think the air conditioning ducts got a couple of holes through them but that's where one was and another one you, you talk about club next, the brunswick club being next to the railway line um there was a club in uh, it's actually in Surrey Hills, called Camberwell. Yeah. Uh, where I think it used to be located on Mailing Road in Camberwell. Yeah, Mailing Road. I, I've shot at that club as well. And Neil, you might be surprised. I've shot at that club 
with um, Steyr F88 rifles because I, I'm probably the only person left in the Defence Force who has a what's called a Steyr T qualification. Now the Steyr came the Steyr came with a kit. Well, it didn't they're actually very rare. There had there was um, a, a kit which you could modify the actual 5.556 Steyr to shoot 22 rounds and a 22 magazine. And it was called the Steyr T. And I think I'm the only NCO left in the Army who has that qualification because we shot Steyr Ts at that, at that range and mainly road. You, you know why it, it, it is no longer there? No. It relocated. The reason why it relocated is because as the trains pulled up, the drivers thought they were being shot at, <laughs> as I understand it. That's crazy. So, they moved, uh, there's another um, defence uh, plot of land down the road, which they, they ended up, and still are there now. You and might want like, to, um, you might, you probably don't know, I haven't told you the story before, but I built right next to, um, I was um, military, obviously, for 30, infantry for 31 years, but my home depot was the Surrey Hills Depot, um, 5-6 Depot in Surrey Hills, so Bravo Company in Surrey Hills. Now, I was, at, I was part of, part of my Stye T qualification we built our own indoor range, 22 range, inside the 50-metre hall, drill hall, the Army drill hall, which dates back to World War II. We built our own range. What that required was us taking the old timber wall panelling off, filling the wall cavity with sawdust, then getting a piece of steel, a, a, a half-inch steel plate, which was about four metres long. So I don't know where we pilfered that from, but we found it. Lay that in the wall and then and then filled it with more sawdust on top of that yeah. and then put a rubber mat over that. And then we had a 22 range inside the drill hall at the Bravo Company Barracks in Surrey Hills. Now our safety procedure, Neil, was simply shutting the making sure that the roller doors were shutting yeah so no one would mistakenly open the roller door and wander into the range during the life <laughs> i mean it was a great environment and that's how these clubs formed because they weren't as i said they, they fell under the defense act that's how they were regulated at the time <clears throat> so they weren't subjected to in later years what other clubs that were formed in the 40s and 50s Douglas double a film became and others what they were subjected to. So those clubs continued uh, for, uh, really right through to the late 90s um, under that umbrella in that environment. Well, the Bravo Most... Company range, so that, 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 that range on um, at, at the Bravo Company depot, that's defence property. If it was on civilian property, I doubt that range would have even been approved. That they weren't subject to the licensing arrangements of uh, state police. They weren't subject to planning laws. Um, and they were often given peppercorn rents. Yeah, we're not just talking about the, the licensing, the, the actual range. Um, the approvals. The range. I don't, we would never have got that range approved from uh, Victorian licensing if it was a civilian range. Yeah. They were approved by, uh, I remember the guy's name actually, um, by by the Department of Defence. They had an inspector of rifle ranges that actually took care of it. But what I was, I guess the point I was alluding to is that you had this, this uh, parallel um, uh, pipeline, effectively, of these rifle clubs that went past World War One, past World War Two, into the 90s, and still, many of them still exist. At the same time as some of these 
uh, as other pistol, rifle and shotgun clubs were formed in, in later years after World War II, that didn't have that protection. And so they were subjected to the licensing by and registration requirements of um, state governments, planning laws and the commercial realities, I think, of actually running a range. So uh, my argument is that the protections that we enjoy were great, but it also prevented us from modernising. Yeah, well, I don't, the, the RMIT Rifle Club, I mean, back in 89 to 92 when I was there, well, obviously those rifles were under the, I'm not sure, RMIT owned them, but I don't know how, they weren't licensed as such to anyone's name. No, they weren't. They were just simply, as you say, under the Defence Act, and RMIT just had custodian of them. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I mean as it turned out, and this is really with a benefit of hindsight, uh, in later years, because these clubs really were uh, had um, really an easy easy ticket, it meant that you know they were competing against other sports in later years. So to try to attract new people into the sports meant um, you're trying to compete against hockey, swimming, you know, other clubs uh, in a modern environment with a lot of old infrastructure and people who weren't really running the range. In a commercial sense, they weren't um, they weren't pressured to think commercially, to take out insurances and things like that. Um, so, unfortunately, I think, as I said, that, that those protections I think just damaged in later years. It got us to a great start, got us the infrastructure we've got now, but it's um, yeah, it's dated, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm just looking up online to even see. I'm trying to find if the RMIT Rifle Club still exists. I don't know and I think the Melbourne Uni one I don't know if that's still going either yeah Yeah, I can't find it this episode of Gun News Australia is brought to you by the same people who created the National Shooting Council so if you like what you're hearing you can support this podcast for just $3 a month that's less than a cup of coffee your support will help us get interviews and information like this out to shooters who need to hear it For more information, check out our show notes or go to our website at politicsreloaded.com. So what happened with, um, I I guess, these regulations, the reason why I I wrote the article about it is because after the fuss that occurred after Port Arthur, there was a story that started floating around in about 97, 98, which basically said that whilst the states had changed their firearm laws, that in fact these regulations provide exemptions for some people under the defence regs to be able to use semi-automatic military type firearms under the protection of the defence regs because it took it out of state state hands. I mean, I remember the story, and and that's actually what led to effectively what was a knee-jerk reaction to suddenly repeal the, the regs, and those clubs were suddenly then out on out on the cold. They no longer had federal protection they were not compliant with state licensing uh, registration range approvals uh, and in fact you had a lot of shooters that didn't have firearm licenses because if you at the time had uh, was a, a shooter in one of these clubs and you engaged in other activities such as hunting odds are you had a license so you were fine but if you were just a target shooter in that environment you didn't need to have a license so suddenly you've got a gun, uh, you've got no, no legal coverage. Um, it was actually a, um, yeah, it was, it was a very unfortunate sequence of events that led to that. Um, yeah, well, being up where I am now, in, Neil in Brisbane, 
I shoot a lot at Belmont Rifle Club, and it, I'm, I'm also a member of a few clubs, still a member of a club in Victoria, but I'm also a member of uh, Queensland Military Rifle Club. Now, this photo yeah. is from the Queensland Military Rifle Club back in the early, still the 80s and 90s, where a lot of the club members are shooting um, the old M16A1. The M16A1, the semi-automatic version, because that's all they, that's what we could have uh, back then. Also, there was a quite a few uh, SLRs, because a lot of them would have been ex-military members who mm. love the SLR. So there are a lot of them owned SLRs, their own SLR. I know a couple of people who still got that their original SLRs from the, the old QMRC days that they had to put onto Cat D licenses and go to all the rigmarole of, of obtaining a Cap D license as a professional shooter because that was the only way they could keep their M16A1 or AR15s really because the M16 was a semi the fully automatic version but hmm. these were the AR15 versions and the SLRs but there's heaps of photos of like 40 or 50 shooters on the line shooting um, AR15s and SLRs with no problem at all up until what'd you say? What ninety? So it was after ninety six. Yeah, ninety eight. Yeah, so ninety eight. So they they could keep them. You think up to about ninety eight? Yeah, yeah, um, lost them. Yeah, so most people lost them except for the one person I know. And it's not easy. It's definitely not easy getting a cat D license nowadays. Mm-hmm. So that's it. You're you're a rare beast if you have a, you have a cat D license. Yeah, yeah. So from that time, there was. Um... Obviously, big changes for those clubs, and they were now in the same bucket as other shooting clubs, but not with the same sort of facilities. Um, the other clubs that obviously has had formed really in early years, they've built themselves up um, to have fewer but bigger facilities. And the other thing about the clubs, of course, is that they moved out of, um, they were basically relinquished from um, responsibility of the federal government. So their peppercorn rent arrangements became. We we're actually on thin ice um, because it's, if some of them were on other land and the rent goes up or they, they get kicked out. So, um, yeah, the rug was well and truly taken away from under their feet. The Anzac Range in New South Wales, David Leinhelm had massive, in, massive input of saving that range because the government wanted to close that range completely. That was a full, that's a full bore 1,000-yard range. Turn, oh, I think they wanted to turn it into a national park or something, there. And the shooting clubs, the 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 full bore club, as I think, mm-hmm. I think the double SAA at the time handed in the reins as and gave up the ghost. And the 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 full bore club at I think it was Malabar, the Malabar football club, took on the government surprisingly and won. I mean, with David Limehelm, the senator at the time's help. But they won an epic case and kept Malabar Range open. That was a that was a huge win for shooters. Oh, I'm just talking here. Anzac has been used for recreational shooting since the 1860s. Yeah, yeah, it's a, that's an that's an epic. I mean, that's a must be one of the oldest ranges in the whole of a country. Maybe even the Commonwealth. If by by looking, well, maybe not UK, but I mean certainly that's um, that's that's up there when it comes to uh, yeah. You know, well, it's um that range has certainly seen its its share of three oh three rounds go down and down yeah. the, down into the bucks. Yeah. The um, I guess I, I guess the good news is that a lot of these clubs have adapted. I mean, they 
went for a route shock, they uh, had to change quickly, and a lot of them did. And a lot of them are now actually moving into even things like electronic targets. Now, when I wrote the article, I wasn't aware, but I've had quite a lot of people email me uh, which suggests the use of electronic targets. By this, I'm talking about getting rid of a spotting scope and just having a screen next to you that records the shot. Yeah, which is the um, F class, the F class system. Yeah, that that's actually much more widespread than I even I thought. I mean, I knew that it was gaining a lot of traction. A lot of other clubs have also picked up on it, but it's good to see that electronics are really starting to. Yeah. You know, who wants to walk down 900 yards to the, to the butts every 10 minutes? Well, sometimes you can't even see that like, you've got a spotting scope and it's, uh, you've got a mirage up and down the road. You can't even see where the shot is. So doing your ciders and you can't really see exactly, you know, sort of where they're going. So I think, well, I've just got to shoot my car. I can't, I can't see what I'm doing. There's no point winding up, winding down left or right. I'm just going to shoot my scoring shots. Funny enough, I I'd also remembered I used to be in the Madara Club also, which is the Melbourne District Army Rifle Association. Have you heard of that one? No. That, so the Madara Club, they shot at Cerberus, uh, down at Cerberus. Now, we used to use our yep. SLRs. So you could you could sign out an SLR on the weekend, um, yes. which is jump in the back of a Unimog, and we were given, we were given seven, six, two rounds, or, you know, not... You know, when we got there, so there was there was allocated shooting club seven six two ammunition allocated for the Madara Club, and uh, we used to yes we we had great fun. You know, there was just quite a bunch of us used to shoot down there, and uh, and as you say, not speaking of not seeing the targets, Neil. I mean, on one day being at Cerberus, which is, if you know that place, it, it can get quite squally, and a yeah. storm came in, a hailstorm came in one afternoon, and we were at the 300 meter mound shooting SLRs, and I couldn't see the tar. I couldn't even see the 200 mound, the 200 meter mound, let alone the targets. So we were literally, the shoots went ahead. We were literally just guessing where the targets were. No electronic targets, Neil, back in those days. So we'd have to, we'd have to rely on the butts party going, nah, you missed that one, nah, you missed that one. So yeah, I mean, that, that were excellent times. Yeah, I actually have shot there at service. It's um, quite a few years now. Yeah, it's um, if you like mosquito, if you like mosquitoes, yeah, um, and you and you like the wind, uh, it's a good place to shoot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, that's, that's great. So there's a bit of a, a part of the history of some of the, the older rifle ranges. The defence actually shut all the rifle clubs as well. I think the the last must have been just before the two thousand. So. I was in the Madara Club up until about 98, 99, they shut those. The, the, the Defence Department actually shut the clubs down. The full so, ones? Yeah. Well, the, 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 they stopped Yeah, the, they stopped people shooting because the new regs meant that civilians couldn't shoot on defence ranges. Yeah. Because um, part of Madara, part of Madara, you'd have the, the retired or the superannuated defence members would rock up with their 303s. Or other rifles, and or their own, their own SLRs or whatever, and shoot with us. But because civilians were blocked from going on defence ranges, that sort of became a very difficult prospect. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I think that's probably as much as I wanted to cover on on these clubs. There is one other bit of news which you want you can share with us. 
powders and primers. Yeah, well, um, Can it's you... no, no news to anyone in the last nearly two years now that pistol powder has been not made in Australia at the um, ADI factory for more than two years now. That has prevented reloading in bulk for a lot of pistol shooters. Now, luckily, a lot of pistol shooters saw it coming and stocked up on what they could at the time, but obviously stocking up only lasts for so long. And if you've got no ADI pistol powder made for now, well, next year will be coming on the third year, hmm. a lot of shooters have completely run out. There are companies like um, Tiger Shark in Brisbane. There's a company in Melbourne bringing in shotgun powder. Mm-hmm. For the life of me, I just forgot who they were. But Tiger Shark's bringing in uh, Lovex powder, which is European powder, but that's in very small quantities. Uh, we're talking you know, a couple of hundred kilos for the whole shipment compared to what ADI used to make. They used to make that in a week. So powder itself has been very hard to get. Now for rifle shooters as well, because of the the ADI plant being owned by Tails, which is a French-owned defence company, and the agreement the Australian government did to supply powder to the Ukrainian war effort to load 155 shells, it meant a lot of the a lot of the rifle powder facilities were turned over, not to making the old 2208 and 2209, which and um, 2205 even, which a lot of rifle shooters need. That's been turned over to making uh, 155 howitzer powder. So mm. it's a bit hard to even get rifle, and even rifle powder is now in short supply. Now, on top of that, if you if you haven't um, got powder issues, on top of that, uh, primers have gone from eight cents or a, a primer to over twenty cents now a primer because the sheer unavailability of especially federal primers and CCI primers because what primers the US are making are simply going into factory rounds to supply both Ukraine and recently going to Israel. So what there's a vast, vast quantities of ammunition that's now primers which are now going solely to factory ammunition, which is very, very limited the amount of primers worldwide, including Australia, and we're the last, you know, we're the, we're the, the last hatch off the boat type thing where America doesn't give a crap about us, but uh, we, we, we get what we get. Now, Cleavers up in Queensland got a million and a half federal primers, pistol primers. They were gone in a week. That was very recently. I managed to secure myself 3,000, but on top of the lack of powder, and the lack of primers, the price of factory ammunition has skyrocketed. If you're hunting and only going through, you know, one box of hunting ammunition every year, I mean, that's not so much of an issue. But if you're if you're a target shooter or an F-class suit shooter, or you or you like going down to the range, and and that is a big issue because when when ammunition jumps from a dollar around to nearly three or four dollars around factory ammunition, that that's a big problem. Yeah. And if you, you then if you go, oh, I'll reload. Well, you can't reload if there's no powder and primers around. So it's it, that's restricted a lot of shooting, especially target shooting now, especially pistol shooting for the last, or well, coming on two years. Hmm. So I know Victoria. There's you see a lot of posts from Victoria. Victoria hasn't had large rifle primers 
for months. I'm talking about any gun shop in Victoria. Uh, I, I know there's a shipment coming down some Czechoslovakian primers, but they're expensive and I'm not, not as reliable, I'm told, as the, the American manufactured federal or CCI or, or Remington primers. Mm. So it's restricting... We're, you know, we're the last cab off the rank as regarding getting any supplies from the states. Yeah, we've, we've got a double whammy here. We've got obviously other events that are sort of sucking up the, the supply, but we're at the end of the supply chain anyway. Yeah, we've got um, to wait our turn. There is no other way. Yeah, so unless Neil, you've got a um a rich uncle who wants to start a um primer factory down there, down there or, or um we're in, we're in trouble. Yeah. And and the there was there was another issue regarding pistol powder. Now a good friend of mine is also retiring from Ivan. I won't say his last name, but Ivan, he's retiring from the military this year. Actually, in fact, his last his last exercise was in November. Not only he was military, Ivan was the chief actual rocket scientist for nearly thirty years in the pistol department at ADI. Now he was. Re- he retired from ADI two years ago, funny enough, and they didn't replace him. Now, Ivan has explained to me that it's not just the staff, the people who make the powder in the factory at ADI. You need a rocket scientist to sign off that that shipment is safe and good to go before they're legally allowed to ship it. So not only do you need a rocket scientist to be there during the manufacturer, they also need, it's very, it's critical on the sign-off of that powder before it gets shipped out. They, ne- they never replaced Ivan in the pistol section at ADI. So there's no one, saw, not only have they not made pistol powder, they haven't replaced the very vital person that they needed to even make the powder in the first place. We're, we're even unsure whether they're ever going to restart, So which will be a, a huge problem for Australia. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think that's probably about it for today. Um, as I said, we look forward to coming back um, in early January, maybe even sooner. Um, this other thing in WA gets uh, some traction. The audio version of this will be put out in the next um, few days. So if you weren't able to, to uh, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, you'll certainly be able to hear the uh, the podcast uh, when it comes out through uh, our website at politicsreloaded.com. So. Sean Fraser, thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and that you're on our email list. And don't forget to check the episode notes because that's where you'll find out how you can support us. Plus, let us know if you want something promoted on the podcast. Maybe you've got a shoot coming up that you want to promote. Just let us know. We'll see you at our next episode of Gun News Australia, brought to you by Politics Reloaded.